Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey guys. A lot of you probably know that we record in Toronto, home of the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission, among I other think. Among other things. Yeah, and the TTC is what I used to get here tonight to record at Luke's apartment. Little, little peek behind the curtain, breaking the fourth wall, something we'll be discussing later in the episode. This episode is nothing if not Brechtian. And, uh, you know, on my way here tonight, uh, I'm trying to do like the way a stand-up comedian <laughs> introduces it, you know, on my way, even though like it didn't happen on my way here tonight it's something that happened to me a few days ago and i'm pretending it happened today now you're just like shattering the fourth wall yeah i am the jean-luc godard of podcasting Uh, But on my way here tonight, uh, I was startled on the subway by what sounded like over the PA, the ramblings of a madman who had broken into the booth. But in fact, it was a new initiative that the TTC has introduced. Uh, Comical announcements from beloved Canadian-born comedian Seth Rogen. Have you heard about this, Luke? Have you been on the subway when this has happened? I've heard about it. Um, I have not experienced it. But furthermore, as I was saying to you, you know, off mic before, I don't think I would recognize Seth Rogen's voice if I heard it. Right. This, I think, is one of many conceptual flaws with this. And I I bring this up because I think it might be uh, a way to get into just at the beginning of the episode, a discussion about this city we live in, Toronto. Seth Rogen is a Canadian celebrity. And yeah, perhaps you've heard of him. And if you know anything about Canada, you know that we love our celebrities here. Every Canadian can name every Canadian celebrity. Yeah, and, all 12 of them. And he's one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, and the TTC got a great coup of having Seth Rogen agree to do some comical announcements for the subway. And so I was at Young and Bloor Station during rush hour, which is never a pleasant place to be because here in Toronto, we don't really have a functioning transit system. <laughs> And Seth Rogen's announcement blared over the PA, and it took me a while to figure out what exactly it was, uh, because if I can do, you know, an approximation of what it sounded like, he went, what's the deal with these people who cut their toenails on the subway? Guys, you're not at home. It's public. Don't do that on the subway. <laughs> so it's 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 a good thing I haven't experienced this, but like this sounds even worse in practice than it does in theory. I figured like what was meant by this is like okay, it's a sort of dumb hometown pride thing where you know he does the sort of rather prosaic announcements. They're like you know you know now approaching such and such station or whatever. Yeah. But but you're saying that he does little he does little riffs. It's like the idea of let's make humorous those things that are actually sort of the uh, the voice of Big Brother telling you not to litter or whatever. It, exactly. And it made me kind of understand better the art and craft of the subway announcement because <laughs> as this announcement was going on and Young and Bloor Station during rush hour is a very busy place. So it's already kind of loud and you already don't hear the announcement that well. And so it takes you a little while to clue into what exactly is going on. And there were a lot of startled faces, a lot of people who looked a little bit upset at the sound of this this man kind of kind of yelling and riffing over the PA. And the first thing you think is, is there an emergency? Yeah. Like, is is this a terrorist? <laughs> What's going on? It also made me realize how rarely I, like, give my full attention to an announcement yeah. on the subway. That's why the announcements are so short. You uh, know what I don't like about it? It's like, the announcements you hear over the subway are purely functional. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, informing you of something 
And speaking for myself, if I'm in a crowded subway station, especially Young and Bloor at peak hours, that's actually kind of a private moment for me. I'm on my headphones, whatever. Or if, you know, my girlfriend's with me or something, we're just like having a conversation. You're trying to do anything you can to distance yourself, to remove yourself from the kind of, you know, the chaos of it. And for many people, right, you're going to, you're going to work, you're coming back from work, whatever. It's your whole experience there is kind of a an instrumental thing and you're and it's just something you kind of have to suffer until you Mm -hmm. get on to you know get on Mm -hmm. with your life so it's kind of intrusive it's like get out of my face i don't want you know seth rogan's voice yeah why why do you assume that i'm in the mood for whimsy right now and and (laughs) and and why this particular genre of whimsy it's comedy being forced on me (laughs) and i don't like that so this is our new feature uh toronto bits uh what else is happening in our in toronto will it's not actually our new feature, but, you know, Toronto is always kind of indirectly a character in Michael and us, so... Well, nothing you know. in Toronto works. I mean, whenever, <laughs> I'm, whenever I'm on the subway, particularly during peak hours, I'm always thinking about how frustrating it is that we're building subways out in Vaughan right now, because that will more easily connect the people who voted for people like Doug Ford and <laughs> Rob Ford to downtown. But meanwhile, the downtown, it's very difficult to commute (laughs) and today it was also storming and raining really hard which probably means that most of the city will flood again as it has last week and the week before and Mm -hmm. nothing will ever be done about that because city council will not vote to raise property taxes (laughs) and it's just a city that doesn't work but what we do have are seth rogan announcements (laughs) on the subway will was taking a bit of an anti-suburban line there and i want to make clear that uh, i'm a universalist so the official line of my and us is not anti-suburban you try commuting in like north york let alone vaughn and see if you still think downtown's worse hey listen i don't think that we should have canceled the lrt out there no of course not yeah Um, i'm all for making commuting easier for them on the theme of you know you know toronto being a city that doesn't work so i know we have a bunch of listeners in in new york and obviously you know new york is a place where you know the state and the city is kind of um beset by this disastrous kind of one-party cadre politics which is a disaster but in toronto you know we have our own kind of set of problems and you have you know the fact that in the 90s you had this kind of forced amalgamation which no one wanted that was an amalgamation that brought together the downtown and the suburbs into one sprawling city Mm -hmm. and but the trouble is that in like unlike in the united states uh you know the problem in, in a lot of american cities chicago new york you know, you have these sitting administrations where, you know, in a place like New York, where the Democratic Party essentially runs the state, you know, it just kind of becomes a cadre and they discipline their own base and stuff. And it takes, you know, a kind of Cynthia Nixon style insurgent candidacy or whatever to even like begin to address any of that. We have a different problem. You know, we don't have the same strong mayor system. You don't have a mayoral administration. In fact, a city here has no constitutional status, whatever. It's in the kind of common parlance of our, you know, wonks here. It is a creature of the province, which essentially means the city has no power to do anything. In fact, we could elect the left-wing mayor, and apart from property taxes, which are unpopular, that Will alluded to, and kind of user fees, there's really nothing the city can do to actually raise any money to do anything. So you have to go cap in hand to the province, which puts it at the mercy of, like, whatever administration, you know, is in power there. And it also means that, you know, even if you get the money from, from the province, you can have a reactionary mayor like Rob Ford and he'll just cancel it, it you know, be, to do some pie in the sky thing like, oh, we're going to build a subway with only two stops that cost like 
a gajillion dollars um, instead of like a mass transit system that actually works. And that's just like one of many features that, you know, of this city that doesn't work. And in addition to that, uh, the provincial government, it's entirely within their power to micromanage every aspect of city government. Right. So anyone in, in Canada listening will be aware of this, but just recently the newly elected Ford administration friend which, of the show uh, they they announced unilaterally uh, they did not run on this that they are just going to cut the size of Toronto City Council and basically it's a kind of a coup d'etat it, it means there will be even fewer progressive downtown representatives on council that that is frankly where a lot of the you know uh, you know, the, the downtown wards are already underrepresented, but frankly, they do elect a lot of the kind of like NDP aligned and more progressive councillors. So it means fewer of them. And, you know, the goal is to kind of ensure right wing uh, governments in perpetuity. It's the most brazen gerrymandering you've ever seen. And so anyway, that's the hellhole we're broadcasting from. But hey, it's not all bad because, um, you know, Justin Trudeau will have a viral moment every so often that gets picked up by, like, the American press. And so actually Canada is doing fine. Well, there's more good news. Uh, my favorite annual event, the CNE, is on right now. That's the Canadian National Exhibition, folks. God, it, it's so fun. You go you go to the Midway, uh, you watch the Super Dogs, you get your Tiny Tom Donuts. I can't think of anything that could possibly go wrong at the X. <laughs> you have fun, you eat a 10,000 calorie burger, and you cross a picket line to do it. Folks, don't cross a picket line. Don't go to the CNE. Uh, I was so upset to see our mayor at the opening ceremony. Uh, I mean, it's not like I expect any better from him, but you know. Our mayor obsequiously next to Doug Ford, his old buddy. Yeah, his, his, his old cricket buddy. His old buddy who he, I guess he's ostensibly suing His now. old friend from the country club who he's kind of performatively pretending to be angry at. What I like though is that the striking workers, they, you know, they put up a barrier basically it looked like, or mm. there was some kind of thing, you know, so kind of this you know, absurd like civic liturgy of, oh, we're starting the CNE. it's an annual tradition fun for the whole family well you know like the workers are on strike and they're bringing in scab labor from out of the province but the workers put a big like rat up above so it's just this rat looming mm -hmm. over john tory and doug ford which uh, which was great i remember back when john tory had a wonderful radio show on news talk 1010 which i would occasionally listen to back when i had a car <laughs> Because it was on right at five o'clock. This you was know? in this was in Will's uh, kind of reactionary commuting days when he was uh, <laughs> when he lived in small town. He worked in small town Ontario. We haven't really talked about that on the show. We should do that. Yeah, sometime. we should. We should. But I remember shortly after Robin Doug Ford's Margaret Atwood incident, uh, this was when Rob was mayor and Doug was a city councilor, and they were going to cut library funding. And uh, Margaret Atwood publicly protested this, and Doug said some, I guess, ignorant comments, not, not knowing who Margaret Atwood was <laughs> and saying that she should mind her own business. John Tory had Doug on his radio show, and they had this interview where Tory was like, well, you know, I'm sure uh, what you really meant to say was uh, that uh, Margaret Atwood is a wonderful author and, uh, you know, a, a, a Canadian treasure. But, you know, there are certain issues uh, that, that, you know, uh, we have some uh, natural uh, disagreements on. And Doug went... Well, of course, that's what I meant to say, John. <laughs> glad, glad we got that settled. Le Vietnam brûlait, moi je hurle Mao, Mao. Johnson rigolait, moi je vole Mao, Mao. Le Napalm coulait, moi je roule Mao, Mao. Les villes crèvent, moi je rêve Mao, Mao. 
So it's time to travel in our DeLoreans back to May 1968. <laughs> our episode this week will be about two films by Jean-Luc Godard, his 1967 film La Chinoise and his 1970 film British Sounds, also known as See You at Mao. So you've talked about the possibility of doing Godard for a while, and I think it was inevitable. Um, I mean, I know just to our to our listeners, I know that we you know we do a lot of crap, um, and we often have interesting discussions about it. But sometimes it's, it's fun to do you know, stuff that's not total crap and try to have interesting discussions about that too. And Jean-Luc Godard is somebody who's pretty important to me. I kind of don't trust any cinephile who doesn't have a long and complicated relationship with Jean-Luc Godard. You know, not only is he arguably the most important filmmaker of the second half of the 20th century. Big words. Big words, but, you know, I think that so much important cinema derives from Breathless, whether it's Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, with Bonnie and Clyde, the whole new Hollywood. Well, I'm more of a populist, so I prefer J.J. Abrams. Yeah, well, you know, I would say the other possible contender for the title is George Lucas. <laughs> so those are, I guess, you know, two two different streams of cinema for the, of the last 60 years. But also, like, if you're if you're a cinephile, I think how can you kind of not be interested in this guy who throughout his career is constantly exploding the form and turning it inside out and trying to see what are its limits, what are the sorts of ideas it can express. I also can't think of another filmmaker who is more alive to the plastic and the sensual qualities of the medium and is more inventive and interesting in whatever form he's working in, whether it's 35 millimeter video, cell phone video, 3D. He's still inventive and imaginative to this day. That said, he's often somebody who's very mean-spirited and willfully obscure, and he's willfully obscure oftentimes in a way that is kind of a cover for his intellectual laziness. Mm Mm-hmm. But also, he's the only filmmaker whose career and his ambitions and, yeah, just the kind of story that his career tells and the arc of his career that is comparable to somebody like Bob Dylan in another medium. I think for many people, if they were coming up with adjectives to describe Godard, another one that some people might say, especially more critical viewers, is they might say pretentious. I mean, what do you think? What do you think of that? I mean, they're not entirely wrong. I mean, on the other hand, you know, he was part of that cadre of critics working for Calle du Cinema who sort of popularized the idea that cinema could be an art form on par with other art forms. And the director, a director like Hitchcock or Howard Hawks, could be an artist on par with somebody like Beethoven or Picasso. And early in his career, he had a love of Americana, and he had kind of a youthful exuberance that made his films exciting to people in, in a way that, you know, I, I hesitate to say populist, mm-hmm. but there, there was a pop quality to his early cinema. The movies we watched tonight capture him on the cusp of and then in the midst of a radical shift in his cinema. If you look at the 15 movies that he made between Breathless in 1960 and Weekend in 1967, they show a gradual disillusionment. He starts loving American aesthetics and American pop cinema and then gradually becoming alienated from all things American. And his cinema also becomes more you know, willfully obscure. So I think the charge that he's pretentious, 
I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And to some extent, you know, a lot of his post-67 films are impenetrable. Uh, But I think a lot of it also comes from a feeling of betrayal that a lot of his fans and admirers felt and continue to feel by the shift that his career took. So it's like when Dylan went electric at Newport and people were like really angry about it. I mean, frankly, yes. And coming to Godard or coming to Dylan at this late date... I think is easier in some ways than having grown up with them through their evolution because we can take take a step back and look at their career as being this grand arc. But with Godard, imagine Dylan went electric, but he went electric and went straight into his Christian period. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, earlier this year, there was a biopic that was released called, it was released in this country as Godard Mon Amour, and it's also known as Le Ré du Table, which captures Godard in this period. And it was directed by Michelle Hazana Vicious, who made The Artist. And I haven't seen this film. Uh, most people who I respect hated it. Uh, <laughs> but it also approaches him with this sense of betrayal. And I feel like there's this general disaffection when it comes to Godard's political cinema that's kind of like, you know, why couldn't he just keep making these nice, fun movies with images that we could post on Tumblr? Right. Why, why, <laughs> did, why did he have to go down this road that was that was more difficult and, right. and more political. And, you know, why was he so stupid to think that movies could be instruments of social change? And that's an attitude that even though his Maoist phase was, I think, pretty objectively a failure in most ways, mm-hmm. it's an attitude that I'm... Uh, well, you admire I, the ambition of it, I suppose. Yeah and, yeah, and I don't admire the kind of easy dismissiveness with which people approach that, yeah. that phase of his career. So, I mean, my relationship to Godard is much less extensive than yours. I mean, I've actually really only seen his political film. Believe it or not, I've never seen Breathless, mm. um, which I I need to correct that soon. But there are several of his films that I think you would like very much. I think you'd like Viva Savi mm. and uh, Weekend and Contempt. I really think I've only seen, uh, apart from the two we've watched now, I think Tuva Bien, which is also from the Marxist phase, is mm. another one I've I've seen. You know, so I know him as somebody who is consciously engaged in the, in a project of political cinema and in who is invested in the idea that it is possible to create a political cinema which is to say one that is not just sort of making arguments but is formally revolutionary mm-hmm. in the sense that just you know i mean in tuva bien you know you have uh, quite explicitly this kind of brechtian approach where you know godard the whole way through is kind of nudge nudging you the whole time with look at you know the film is an artifice and you know so you can kind of see the set and you can see that it it is a set and things like that i mean i too find that certainly very interesting it's a kind of formal ambition that frankly it's kind of high modernist we don't really Mm -hmm. we don't really have a way of thinking like that in the context of post-modernity so it's admirable in that context but i mean I feel like we do have to ultimately grapple with the fact that, you know, it was a it was a failure. Yeah. One of the things motivating this turn in his cinema was an increasing disillusionment with America. In fact, an increasing hatred of America and everything it represented, its sort of hegemonic influence on politics, economics, cinema. Yeah, mass culture. And this is something that I think is very hard for a lot of his fans to grapple with, because one of the appeals of Godard early on, and something that continues to be an appeal for people like Quentin Tarantino, who claimed to have been influenced by him, is that he saw the beauty and the poetry of American 
you know, what was ostensibly American trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him to turn his back on America is hard for people. One of his more recent films from 2001, In Praise of Love, there's a subplot in the film where a company called Spielberg Films Incorporated is buying up the memories of Holocaust survivors in right. Europe, which it indicates the extent of his disillusionment. It also shows, I think, kind of the ugly and mean-spirited it's very, side. It's also, I mean, I, I'm not even and, entirely sure what... I mean, it just seems very heavy-handed and kind and, of mean. And unfair, yeah. really. Beca- yeah. Because, like, is Spielberg's work with the Holocaust and Holocaust survivors really so yeah. dishonorable? Yeah. Something else that I think Godard is guilty of is throwing a lot of images on the screen and sort of leaving it up to the audience to assemble them into whatever they want them to be. Which, you know, on the one hand, it's like, since it can be whatever you want it to be, it can be uh, quite exciting to try to assemble it into what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, since he's such a powerful image maker, many of the images are very evocative on their own, and the juxtapositions can be very evocative. But then once you start to kind of examine them at all, like there's a scene in his film, Film Socialism, where it... (laughs) cuts to uh, some bomber jets, NATO jets or whatever, and then it cuts to a bunch of people on a cruise ship dancing. Mm. And you think, you know, is that really such a powerful uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> visual argument? So it's kind of hard for me to take Godard that seriously as a thinker. And yet the movies are so dense with allusions to the whole history of art and politics. Mm. You know, you could spend weeks decoding all of the references, particularly in his later movies, that they're frustrating experiences because they think, oh, well, you know, if I just just figure out everything he says, then magically it will all click into focus. But part of having a complicated relationship with Godard is, is the suspicion that maybe there isn't really a whole lot there. So let's talk about this through the lens of the two films we watched. So La Chinois, which is kind of the longer of the two films, which is an adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Devils, but it's set in pre-1968 Paris, and it's a bunch of, you know, pretty bougie Parisian students who we find out at the end of the film are just on their summer break. And Mm -hmm. so while they're on their summer break... um, they basically form a kind of a a Maoist sect and they're just sitting around in these very swanky apartments with essentially just like hundreds of copies of Mao's Little Red Book. And and most of the film is just them having absolutely impenetrable tautological discussions that are ostensibly about Marxist theory and revolutionary praxis and whatever. But, I mean, they're not really about anything. It sort of feels like you know, being on left Twitter now, so much of the well, film is kind of like sectarian, you know, yeah. sectarian disputes. A part of a part of left Twitter. <laughs> arguments over minutia and you know what terminology is correct. Mm-hmm. This film came out of Godard's falling under the influence of the École Normale, which is a very prestigious liberal arts institution in Paris and continues to be, and in particular, a fellow by the name of Jean-Pierre Gorin with whom he would make a number of films in the 70s. This was around the time of the Cultural Revolution in China, and the students at this school were very interested in the idea of Mao as being a Marxist-Leninist figurehead. What do you know about kind of the Maoist intellectual movement in Paris at this time? It's probably not as much as I should, but what I'd say generally is that in the 1960s, with the revolution in China, the kind of big split on the sort of far left had been among various, you know, groups that were aligning themselves with various factions that came out of the Russian Revolution. 
And with Maoism, you had this new phenomenon uh, to which you could kind of declare allegiance or which you could say represented the authentic type of revolutionary practice or whatever. And so the French Communist Party, which was very, very big and remained very big into the 1980s, I don't actually know a lot about its its mm. relationship to Maoism, but it, I mean, it had at one point had a kind of a Stalinist influence as well. But the fact is, there was a genuinely revolutionary potential in the 1960s, in Paris especially. I mean, and th this film is not as obscurantist as the second one we watched. Um, so I think one of the points the film is making is that, you know, we see these young people... Uh, Godard didn't know this at the time because Paris 68 hadn't happened yet. But, I mean, these young people aren't really, they're not really doing anything. There's almost nothing that they do in the film which constitutes political action. The one meaningful thing they actually do, or the one substantive thing they do, which is this kind of completely empty assassination attempt of the Soviet Minister of Culture. It's just so kind of lifeless, and they just kind of get, they get to it not really through passion, but through a kind of obscure theory. And I think that one comment you could make about this film in relation to the atmosphere on the French left and on the kind of the European left at the time is that there actually was genuine worker power, there was a genuine revolutionary fervor, there was an organized working class, there was real intellectual ferment, like it wasn't just all kind of people sitting around having obscure discussions. I mean, a year or less than a year after this film was, was made, you know, events kind of uh, were put into motion that toppled Charles de Gaulle and that led to the creation of a new French Republic. So you can't knock that. But the students in the film are so removed from anything that, that's actual or practical. You know, there's a wonderful uh, a quote that I think is so kind of applicable to this type of sectarian activity that appears early in the movie. It's kind of printed on the wall. It's something like, a minority with the right ideas is a majority. And, you know, that's something that, you know, that kind of obvious, the obvious contradiction that haunts a lot of the silliest sectarianism where... You know, you have a tiny group of people, if it's a group that, you know, calls itself Marxist in one way or another, you know, ostensibly it represents, you know, some kind of grand universal, like trans-historical, you know, purpose and destiny. And, and it represents kind of, it has within its hands kind of the general interests of the majority of people in society. And at a certain point, that bumps up against the fact that, I mean, in the case of this movie anyway... It's a bunch of like upper middle class students sitting around having completely obscure discussions, not even kind of perfunctorily visiting like a picket line or, or having any engagement with the French working class, which they're constantly talking about, or and even and even more removed from the third world working class that they claim to be inspired by. You get so claustrophobic in this movie. For almost none of it is outside. Mm -hmm. It's all just kind of in, in these rather stuffy interiors. I'm always surprised that Godard made this movie despite being, I guess, so enthralled with the energy and the ideas of the students at the École Normale, since everyone comes off so badly in this film, and it, it's kind of a comical treatment of them. Reading up on the film, I picked my copy of Richard Brody's biography, uh, Everything is Cinema, off the shelf, and he talked about how Godard took very seriously a kind of Marxist idea of self-criticism. And the character of Julian, or Guliam, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, played by Jean-Pierre Lyot in this film, is very obviously a Godard surrogate. Mm. It is one of many kind of ridiculous-looking people in the movie. And there's a scene in the film where he writes the names of you know, dozens of famous thinkers and writers on a chalkboard, including Shakespeare, Sophocles, Sartre, and one by one, he he 
wipes them all off until only Bracht is left. They're all declared problematic except for Bracht. And in the apartment, you know, there are dozens, hundreds of books lining the wall, but they're all Mao's little red book, which would seem a satiric comment on, you know, the possibility of becoming overly dogmatic to the point where you're not letting anything else into your frame of reference. So you're purging yourself of all ideas that don't perfectly line up with your political project. Mm -hmm. And yet Godard would, after this film, become increasingly dogmatic in his cinema. So the film was prescient in certain ways uh may 68 happened in fact when may 68 happened godard went to the Cannes film festival and along with uh, several other filmmakers and he said he said shame on you mr bush basically along with several several other filmmakers including claude lelouch and francois truffaut like stormed the stage at Cannes and declared the festival over in solidarity with the workers oh good for them uh yeah i mean the festival was almost over anyway so it wasn't that hard but no awards were given out that year uh-huh. this was a period when godard became increasingly isolated and cut off from all his former colleagues he had a falling out with truffaut around this time because truffaut said i can't be for the bourgeois students against the working class national guardsmen which you know cut off their relationship that's like i know i knew that's like like that's like a that's like a talking point from like a unite blue liberal in 20 in 2016 (laughs) yeah and after may 68 godard essentially divorced from commercial cinema and devoted himself to this new project, the Ziga Vertov Group, which he formed with Jean-Pierre Gorin, which was intended to create this truly Brechtian, truly radical cinema, something, again, totally free from, you know, the bourgeois, capitalist, <laughs> commercial cinema that was derived from Hollywood and something that would shock viewers out of their complacency. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, entertainment, story... Uh, these are concepts that are ultimately comforting and ultimately counter-revolutionary. And so I guess the second film we watched, you know, it's Godard further into this phase. And so we're able to kind of see what the, the fruits of radicalizing that project, what that looks like. Sometimes the class struggle is also the struggle of one image against another image, of one Recently, sound against another sound. In a film, this struggle is between images and sounds. Workers have come to expect too much. High wages, short hours, the whole lot. We've got to produce them cheaply. That means keeping workers' wages down until we, the employers who really run the country, decide that higher wages can be afforded. So, hilariously, British Sounds was a commission for British television. Baffling. uh, Which never aired. It's a series of, I guess, tableaus and vignettes trying to capture the zeitgeist of Britain at this time. It opens with a long, long shot of an assembly line at a British auto plant where socialist or communist text is read on the soundtrack but is often drowned out by the droning sound of this car plant. It's a very abrasive scene, and when he was asked about it, he said, the workers have to listen to that sound all day, every day, for weeks, months, and years, but bourgeois audiences can't stand to listen to it for more than a few seconds. I not, mean, Not a bad point, really. Not a bad point, but it's also, you know, you watch the scene, and it's, it's a little condescending. There's an element of, like, noblesse oblige to it. Look at these workers, you know. Uh, look at them in their natural habitat. You know, immerse yourself in this habitat, and through this, understand their plight better. So weirdly enough, I actually liked this part of the film 
as an experimental piece of, of cinema, I think The Noblesse Oblige you mentioned, it wouldn't really exist at all if the film wasn't contending to have sort of revolutionary potential in and of itself. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that through mere kind of depiction and then, you know, having, uh, you know, having that monologue be read over it, that that like formal radicalism is itself political practice. Like that's why something feels a little bit off but as a as just a piece of aesthetics i really liked it mm-hmm. you watch it and you kind of think like if this is supposed to shock viewers out of their complacency what are they supposed to do with that after you know mm-hmm. um and i guess that's the question that you know is ultimately the reason why this phase of his career failed mm-hmm. i think you liked this movie a little more than you expected to yeah i mean so there were there were parts of it that i that i really liked parts of it were frankly like catnip to me I thought this was going to be much more of a kind of a Will episode because, you know, it's kind of a more of a hard cinema episode and, and Will knows more about that stuff than me, frankly. But British Sounds depicts something that I'm frankly very interested in, which is Britain in the 1970s. I've learned a lot of my politics, weirdly enough, through studying kind of the struggles of the British left in this period. And so I was instantly familiar with the kind of milieu it was depicting, which is this one of you know rising industrial action rising kind of class consciousness a sort of technocratically minded labor government with a radical element that's part of it that's kind of constantly agitating you know we watched a clip of tony ben uh, after after watching uh godard at the, at the same time as that's happening you have the increasing radicalization of the right in britain it's kind of absorption into powellism you know, uh, Enoch Powell, you know, eventually being expelled from the Conservative Party, but it not really mattering because uh, the damage was done. He'd kind of shifted the Overton window. And from then on, you had this alliance of openly xenophobic kind of nativist conservatism with neoclassical economics. And that is what would eventually uh, become Thatcherism. And so the film you know, depicts that milieu and various aspects of it quite incredibly. There was a scene I liked in particular that involves a bunch of workers having this kind of class conscious discussion. You know, I mean, we, we might even assume maybe these are the guys from the assembly line in the in the first scene, I'm not sure. They're engaging with, with issues that are endemic to capitalism and to their role in it and to their location within it. So the more they produce, the less valuable they become. If some new technology is invented that could actually liberate them from the need to work, there's a disincentive for that to be applied because it would put them out of a job. If they're out of a job, their bosses who are capitalists, you know, there'll be no one to buy the products because there are no wage workers left. So, you know, they're kind of engaging with all these issues. They even get into kind of, uh, you know, this whole system, it's not just about inequality. It's about, you know, the relations of production actually determine not just inequality within individual nation states, but in the whole world. So it's actually quite a powerful discussion. Having said that, the film... Uh, then kind of descends back into obscurantism and it doesn't feel like actually this conversation is necessarily making an editorial statement of any kind. I mean, the following scene, it does seem like maybe is meant to, 
you're meant to juxtapose it because it's a bunch of sort of hippies sitting around and they're rewriting Beatles lyrics like they're taking hello goodbye and they're just inserting like I don't know goodbye America hello you know ma they're like, doing like weird Al Yankovic versions of the Beatles songs <laughs> like trying to trying to turn them into mm. socialist right. songs and and presumably <laughs> it's meant to kind of ridicule that but frankly as the film wears on it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. Um, I mean, they're they're so, they're so harmless, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, like it can be whatever you want it to be. But if our reading of the film is correct, that it's supposed to be an ironic counterpoint to the workers who we see debating their situation, then it seems a little mean spirited. Uh huh. Another another thing I really liked was there's a kind of monologue that's read out by some kind of right wing figure who. I'm not sure if he's directly meant to represent Enoch Powell or he's sort of the the voice of Powellism. To me, he's kind of the voice of the Tory elite at this time who were kind of descending into further into xenophobia and who increasingly had this idea of the national interest, this kind of idiom of the national interest. It was like we achieve, you know, we need to forge a kind of new national unity by basically smashing organized labor. And organized labor is this dangerous thing. It's like a, an albatross around the neck of our industry. And, you know, you, bosses aren't the enemy. Workers and bosses can be friends. And um, and we have to we have to kick the radicals out. Not unlike the language conservatives use today around like cultural Marxism or political correctness or something, where it's like we're being so held back. We're being constrained. Um, and so... That monologue perfectly captured what the real undertones and kind of how deeply really fascistic they were. And then he transitions into that kind of Enoch Powell xenophobia mm-hmm. where he's talking about, you know, I'm not a racialist, but uh, that's what he says. I'm but, not, yeah. But, you know, we need to have stronger borders because, frankly, these people are coming in and they're breeding like rabbits. Right. And, uh, you know, frankly, we need to consider sterilization. Or, mm-hmm. you know what, perhaps we even need to eliminate them altogether. Well, you know, it's it's not, a, I don't think it's widely known, but uh, there was an incident later, I guess, in the 70s where there's a guy by the name of Keith Joseph, who was a senior figure in the Tory party. And he was actually, I think, widely touted as kind of, you know, the next leader of the Tory party. And he was from this rising faction in the Tory party who were these kind of class fighters. Often they were, you know, you know, Powell himself, I believe, was a had a working class background. Mm. And people like Margaret Thatcher, who was, you know, she was kind of a, a middle class fighter. These, this wasn't kind of the old state Tory establishment. These were extremely angry, uh, politically radical people. So Keith Joseph was one of was kind of part of this faction, and he gave a speech where he was base. It was basically kind of a eugenics hmm. speech, and it was sort of contending among other things that some of the social problems in Britain could basically be put down to you know poor people having too many children. Hmm. And this speech was controversial enough that it stopped Keith Joseph from becoming the next leader of the Tory party. But if he hadn't given that speech, it might have been him rather than than Margaret Thatcher. But anyway, that's just an illustration of how radical and and sinister the thinking on the on the British right at the time uh, really was. And the uh, film captures that very well. Makes me feel just a little bit better about today. <laughs> If the people of India breed too fast, it's no concern of ours. We're supposed to feel sorry for them because they're starving, while some of us don't feel sorry. We feel glad. Let them starve. Let them die. Let them starve, at least. Built factories, sent them tanks and tractors, helped them build and run their governments. And in return, we don't just take the raw materials we need, we buy their shoddy clothes and trinkets, too. Perhaps in the house next to you. Well, Godard is still alive and active. He had a film at Cannes this year, which is going to be playing at the Toronto Film Festival. And, um, you know, we're going to try to get him on the podcast. (laughs) 
So if you know Jean-Luc Godard, please uh, uh, just get in touch with him. Tell him that uh, we're, we're open to doing an interview, you know, depending on if we can fit it into our schedules. Also at the Toronto Film Festival this year, uh, Michael Moore uh, with his new film Fahrenheit 11.9. I'm sure you all remember that we're a Michael Moore podcast first and foremost. So... Uh, Michael, I know you're listening. Uh, I would not be opposed to being given free tickets to the film. We're uh, Will, Will and I are planning to take a field trip to Flint, Michigan, where Michael Moore definitely lives. Uh, and we're going to just kind of go around to all his favorite haunts and, you know, try to get an interview with him. It's going to be it's going to be good. And we're going to get him on the pod. What do you guys think? Should we get Michael Moore on the pod? Uh, sound off in the comments. <laughs> So on the Patreon, people have been voting and suggesting possibilities for the upcoming fan episodes. You have till the end of the month to do that, but you have to be uh, a patron of Michael and Us Nation or a citizen of Michael and Us Nation uh, to uh, that's very empowering (laughs) to to get a vote. So come on over to so come on over to Patreon.com/slash Michael and Us and sign up to get premium episodes and just you know a deeper uh, level of engagement with uh, you know full voting rights full enfranchisement at michael and us nation it's just a fun cool place to hang out and meet other singles and uh <laughs> j- just just have a chill time yeah we're gonna be launching the mike the official michael and us dating app inspired by sean hannity's uh <laughs> ha- failed hannah date app but uh it's gonna be a lot better so uh we're almost up to 250 patrons now and so uh the 250th, the 300th, the 500th, and the 1,000th patron, uh, if that happens to be you, well, you don't get anything in particular, but you do get our eternal gratitude, so thanks in advance. Um, the Patreon has been uh, getting more and more popular uh, each week, All which is great. All the kids are talking about it. <laughs> Everyone at the, uh, at the soda fountain is talking about mm-hmm. it, at the water cooler. I, I was playing around in, in Patreon uh, recently. There's like a an admin interface or whatever, and you can see... There's a little tab called like exit surveys and it's for people that have like unsubscribed. Oh no. Yeah. So these are the people that have voluntarily disaffiliated from Michael and us nation. There's, and there's just like one or two or whatever, but I guess what happens is when you, I mean, I've never unsubscribed from a a Patreon because I guess I'm a fanatic. So I never do that. I guess it kind of gives you options, kind of a checklist of like, why did you unsubscribe? And the one that I saw, which I guess is like a stock answer was, the creators were not as engaging as I had hoped. <laughs> well, you know, when you're right, you're right. <laughs> Do you think it was that 10-minute uh, cool dude or wet movie discussion we had? If people didn't like that, how are they going to feel about today's Godard discussion? <laughs> uh, Don't worry, folks. It's back to the basics soon. We're going to read the names of all the people who unsubscribed, <laughs> too, so watch out. Uh, we've got uh, that John Kerry movie that we've been talking about. I feel like we've been oh, talking to it about probably it. since the beginning of the podcast. Since the beginning, it's it's been a specter haunting the proverbial <laughs> specter haunting Europe. What's it called? The Go- going up river, the long war of John Kerry. So believe it or not, I was actually actually able to procure a real physical copy of this. I did use capitalism to do it. I used Amazon. That was the only means to acquire this film. Mm. But you know, I will defend to the death the idea that buying this shitty two dollar you know DVD copy of this is uh, is a form of a revolutionary praxis and the podcast is itself a revolutionary form well you've heard the phrase that capitalism will sell you the noose to hang itself (laughs) there you have it (laughs) now watch this drive it might have been camelot for jack and jacqueline but on the chai guevara highway filling up 
with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying Over the luxury's disappointment so he walks over And he's trying to sympathise with her But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. Only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer, and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the 15 fame filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics. He asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment for my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right leap forward Jumbo sales are organised There's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the great leap forwards Ah, oh, one leap forwards, two leaps back Will politics get me the sack? Waiting for the great leap forwards Well, here comes the future and you can't run for it If you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it And cut out the middle man And right
uh, something funny happened to me recently. You just reminded me of like, uh, so just the other weekend, my friend was in town and um, I don't know, we were just like out for a walk in the neighborhood or something. And uh, I guess we'd had a few drinks or whatever. And um, uh, I don't even remember what the bit we were doing was, but you know, we were just doing like some stupid voices or something. We were sort of in the, uh, in the East Annex and we're doing these silly voices for something that was probably wouldn't have been, you know, like wasn't even funny, dr- a little bit drunk, but like would be even less funny sober. And um, these two people uh, like appeared in front of us and I kind of looked at them and uh, and then I kind of, you know, kept doing the silly voice or whatever and looked back and uh, yeah, it was it was Margaret Atwood. And, and oh, uh, wonderful. <laughs> and uh, she lives right around the corner. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that was kind of like a douse of cold water. I, I didn't really say much for the next half an hour. <laughs>